0: Good evening. My name is Carol Ray, and the passage tonight is from the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses." This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you so much. You may be seated. And thank you, Carol, for reading that text for us this evening. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you. It's good to be with you. Everybody looks well-fed and well-rested, so I'm assuming this is going to be a great night. Uh, it, is, it is good to be with you, and I hope your Christmas um, was great. We had a great service here on Christmas Eve, um, and I know everyone's been busy this week, a lot of things going on, a lot, of, uh, a lot of events, a lot of family, all those sorts of things, so I'm glad that you were able to join us uh, here this evening. My name is Jonathan Mosier, uh, and it's my privilege and my honor to be able to open up the Word with you and for you this evening. So if you're not already there, if you could turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. It's interesting thinking back um, with how we began the year, what our intentions and our expectations were for this year, and where we find ourselves today. There's a lot that's transpired over the course of this year, a lot of things that we didn't expect and wouldn't have planned for. And as I was thinking back about the fact that um, starting with that first Sunday of 2020, we began in the book of Mark and then ended up having to take about a three-month break Uh, because of COVID and here we find ourselves at this particular text at this particular moment um, in the sovereignty of God to see the things that he's called us to through the course of the book of Mark to see the way that he has challenged us both individually and as a congregation where we find ourselves in this season uh, it's interesting to come to this particular text this evening. And the story that, that Carol read for us this evening is an interesting one for a lot of reasons. There's obscure facts and obscure things that are happening in the text itself. It's, a, it's actually a passage of condemnation. It's a harsh text if you actually read and pay attention to what it is that it's communicating. But I'm excited to be able to look at this because it's one of those passages that forces us to reckon with ourselves. We've been talking since the beginning of the year about the way that Mark writes and how he writes in this very quick, matter of fact manner uh, and how ultimately his purpose is that we would come face to face with Jesus Christ. That our preconceptions about who Jesus is and our understanding of who Jesus is would be deepened and would be expanded and widened as we see Jesus interacting in the book of Mark. And certainly this is one of those texts that challenges our presuppositions about Jesus. It's a text in which we see an element of the nature and the character of Jesus Christ that we actually don't often see in Scripture. And so it it reveals just one more facet of who Jesus is for us. But as we've been talking about all along in the book of Mark, we talked about the rapid fire manner in which he records the events of the life of Jesus. And here, as the story begins to really slow down, heading into these last few chapters, where the last five or six chapters of the book of Mark are devoted entirely, almost, to the last week of Jesus Christ's life, there's something else unusual that's also happening. Because this story is recorded for us in a very unusual fashion. We can find the story both of the fig tree and the story of Jesus and his exchange in the temple in the book of Matthew. But interestingly, in that text, they're viewed as two separate stories. We find the whole story of the fig tree, the cursing of the fig tree, and the withering of it. And then separately to that, we find the account of Jesus in the temple. But here, for us, Mark has recorded this, this whole story in a very unusual fashion. He's broken it into three distinct acts. He starts by talking about Jesus encountering this fig tree on the way to the temple, and then he moves to Jesus inside the temple, clearing it and and overturning the money changers' tables and all of those things. And then finally, in a rather poetic fashion, he returns to this now withering fig tree the following morning. And I think it's worth drawing out the detail of what Mark talks about here because Mark seems to see a connection in the themes of these two stories, and I think we'll find that connection as well. So join with me in reading, beginning in verse 12. I'll read it for you, it says this. On the following day, this is the day after the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, when they, came back from, or when they came from Bethany, he, that is Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it may no one ever eat from you again and his disciples heard it now this is an unusual text an unusual portion of scripture because there's so much happening here that we're not not given any kind of background or explanation as to what jesus's intentions were We know that Jesus is hungry, we know that he's on his way to the temple, he sees this fig tree, he walks up to it intending to find something to eat, although he knows, of course, that this fig tree is not actually in season. And when he discovers that it has leaves but no figs, he curses it. And Mark specifies for us in a rather unique turn that this tree had no figs because figs were in fact not in season. I think that's the most most number of times I've ever said the word figs in a sermon. But this whole condemnation seems arbitrary to us. What's actually happening in this text that Jesus is going to curse this tree? I mean, we would never expect to walk out into the middle of a Wisconsin winter and walk up to an apple tree and expect to find ripened apples hanging from its branches. It's just not something we would expect. We know how the seasons work. We know what to expect. We have a basic understanding of how these things operate. And we would never be frustrated or angry or disappointed or certainly come to the point of actually cursing a tree just because it hadn't produced fruit outside of its season. And certainly, Jesus knew that. He had lived in this region his entire life. His whole whole upbringing and his ministry had had occurred in this one particular region. He knew what season it was. So what's actually happening here? And my contention is that it appears that just as he had done with the blind man's healing in the beginning of Mark chapter 8, Jesus is creating for us a living parable. He wants to put something on display for his disciples. He wants his disciples to understand something about the nature of things. In fact, in this case in particular, the nature of the nation of Israel itself. Because the fig tree in Old Testament usage is nearly always a reference to the particular nation of Israel. And when you begin to trace through all of the different times that fig trees are mentioned in the Old Testament, what you find is that as this fig tree is representative of Israel, you find seasons of barrenness, where where there is a spiritual barrenness going on in the lives of the children of Israel. And likewise, you find seasons of fruitfulness where there is spiritual benefit and growth and development and maturation occurring in the lives of the children of Israel. These things are symbolic of what's actually going on in the heart of God's chosen people. And Jesus here in this moment is giving us a prophetic commentary on the spiritual condition of those who claimed to be followers of God. And I think it's worth pointing out because for you and I, whenever we see a text like this that's obscure, of course, we naturally have our questions, but if we're finding something that is a warning, a prophetic warning for the people of God, we need to stop and actually give consideration to what that text is telling us about ourselves. And so in this moment, this fig tree is unable to satiate the hunger of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus then turns and curses the tree so that it will never produce fruit again. He's saying, I'm actually cutting you off. You have no more strength and no more life. And all the evidences of what is actual real life, namely the development of fruit, you will no longer have. And he says, in the very same way, the children of Israel have wandered from what God had called them to do. The people of God, this fig tree that God had called for himself had had lost their purpose, lost their way, lost their intention. And so Jesus, in this prophetic illustration, this prophetic parable, says the people of God have not been living in what God intended and therefore, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for the nation of Israel these people who are spiritually barren. And he's putting on display for his disciples and ultimately for us as well, the nature of the judgment that was coming on the people of Israel. And Mark gives us a window into what was going on culturally, certainly what was emblematic of what was going on with the problem with Israel that made Jesus, that made Jesus so introspective and upset. And we find that story, I think, in verse 15. So imagine the picture in your mind. Jesus walks away from the fig tree. He walks directly into the temple. And you can just imagine the scene that lays in front of him. He's walking into a temple that would have been incredibly familiar to him. As Dave talked about a couple of weeks ago, Jesus had grown up attending temple services here. This is the very same temple in which Jesus, at the age of 12 years old, had amazed and put into awe all of the teachers and rabbis who were there with his understanding and insight into the things of God. This was a place that he and his family had, had come to uh, when the high holy holidays had come around. This was a place that he knew well, intimately, personally. It was a place he cared about. He understood what the Old Testament taught about the temple, that this was the dwelling place of God, that it was emblematic of the very presence of God for the people of Israel. He understood all of this history and all of this meaning. It was a place of true and deep significance, not only for Jesus, but for any faithful Jew. And as Jesus states, the temple was intended to be a house of prayer for all people. He's quoting there Isaiah chapter 56. So imagine Jesus' anger as he enters this familiar and beloved place. And he finds that this temple has become an animal market. The Pharisees had discovered what stadiums and concert venues know now that when you have an exclusive market and people can't go elsewhere to buy their drinks or buy their food, you can charge exorbitant rates and people have no opportunity or availability to go get food or drink elsewhere. And so the Pharisees, looking at this whole religious experience and the whole religious culture of their nation as a personal piggy bank, established a means by which they could take advantage of those that were coming into the temple to worship and to pray. And at this time of year, those who were coming into Jerusalem for Passover, who were going to make their sacrifices, and they said, This is our opportunity to cash in. So the Pharisees leveraged, for their own personal benefit, the place that God himself had designed for worship. And historically, people who were coming to Jerusalem at this time of year, they would go out, they would find an animal that they were going to sacrifice, they'd bring it into the, into the temple, and they'd have it inspected, and ultimately they'd, they'd have it sacrificed. But what the Pharisees did is they put their own people in charge of the inspections, and so they would send out individuals who would inspect the animals that you had brought into sacrifice and they'd say, no, 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 no. this one's not gonna work. Do you see that very slight blemish right there? I think this one's got a problem. You didn't buy it from the right place. This, this animal's not gonna work for a sacrifice. But I'll tell you what, we've got these other animal vendors right here in the temple for your convenience and if you just head over to one of them, you can pay this exorbitant rate and you can get one of our pre-approved animals and you can sacrifice that to God and you'll be all set. And of course, you've got people coming from all over the known world into Jerusalem, who now find themselves with no other option but to pay these exorbitant rates for animals to sacrifice. So they'd look and they'd say, well we don't, we don't, we don't have the currency that, that you demand here. And, and the Pharisees in fact had set up their very own specific exclusive currency that could only be used inside the temple or rather than using the common currency that everybody would use when you came to the gates you had to exchange your money whatever currency was from from the portion of the world that you came from and you had to give it to the temple for for a very specific currency that could only be used there so growing up one of my favorite things to do was to go to a place called Aladdin's castle And if you know Aladdin's Castle, if you've grown up in the area, that name may be familiar to you. It was an arcade, and I just loved going to this arcade. But here's the thing about arcades. You go in, and you put your money in the slot, and you get all these tokens back out, and the problem with those tokens is you can only use them there. And this is disastrous because Aladdin's Castle has long since gone out of business, and I think to this day, I still have tokens that can only be used there, right? This is the same scam that the Pharisees were running nearly 2,000 years ago. And of course, even to exchange your money for this unique temple currency, there was going to be a fee on top of that. And as if all of that isn't enough, in order to make space for the money changers and the animals and the inspectors and everything else that's going on around them, the Pharisees had actually decided that where they were going to stage all of this was going to be in the court of the Gentiles. This is the one place that those who had converted to following the one true God, but were not Jewish by birth. This was the one place they could go in which they were able to worship and pray and sacrifice. But the Pharisees, having no use and no consideration for anyone who didn't come from the right bloodline, said, well, let's just turn that into the place where all of the animals can be stored and the Gentiles can just deal with it. the Pharisees, the religious class, the elite of the day had defiled God's intentions for the temple. They had, in addition, disrespected believing Gentiles who'd placed their trust and their faith in the one true God of Israel. So think about what that actually means. Because in other words, these Pharisees who claimed perfect obedience to the 613 laws of Judaism, had failed regarding the two greatest commandments. Because Jesus Jesus is going to say that if you want to know what the two greatest commandments are, they are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second one is like to it, love your neighbor as yourself. So these individuals who are steeped in their own self-righteousness and their own judgmentalism and their own lack of use for anyone who didn't believe or think or act or look like they did have now defiled and disobeyed the two primary commands of God according to Jesus Christ. There's irony in that. The absolute hypocrisy of their hearts and the absolute neglect of other brothers and sisters from among the Gentile nations. And the Pharisees, for their part, despite all of their spiritual knowledge and all of the law and the prophets they had had memorized, despite all of that, they had no concern for the spiritual carnage that they were wreaking on brothers and sisters. And they had no recognition of the offense that they had brought to God himself. But Jesus walks in and surveys the scene and recognizes the sacrilege that's happening So Jesus does something that we have not come to expect from Jesus. He starts flipping tables and throwing chairs as he's teaching those who are gathered about what God actually intended for the temple. And it grows even more interesting when you look at the other accounts in the book of Matthew and in the book of John in particular because John chapter two is going to say about this particular moment that Jesus went out of his way to make a whip out of cords. And to begin to drive the money changers out by whip. This is not the Jesus that we would have necessarily expected, but it's certainly the Jesus that we needed. Now, admittedly, this is an awesome scene. Like, there's nothing about this that doesn't appeal to us because it touches on every cultural touch point that we love. It, talks, you know, it, it touches on the idea of a, of a marshal or a sheriff riding into a, an old dusty western town and kind of sending the bad guys on their way. It touches on any, everything we love naturally about justice. And we don't get this view into Jesus very often. We think about Jesus as this kind of passive, peaceful, hippie character. But in this particular moment, we get a picture of Jesus as a man's man. This is the Jesus with the strength of a carpenter who's overthrowing tables and throwing chairs. This is the Jesus who understands what is right and wrong and will not suffer fools. This is Jesus who is righteously indignant, angry, actual anger from Jesus Christ at the way that the temple had been abused. And Jesus would not allow this sin to continue under the guise of worshiping God. He's gonna do what he needs to do to set things right. And that part of the imago Dei, the image of God with which we're created, that part of us that values justice just kind of rises up and cheers at the actions that Jesus undertakes, but lest we look at these actions, at the actions of the Pharisees as being disconnected from the darkness of our own hearts, I wanna read the portion of scripture that Jesus here references as he's whipping the money changers and flipping tables because it actually puts the story in a whole different light. This is the text of Scripture that Jesus himself quotes from. It's from Jeremiah chapter 7. You'll recognize the portion that Jesus quotes, and this is undoubtedly the text that is on Jesus' mind as he clears the temple. Here's what the prophet Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 7 verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, this is now God himself speaking, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice, with one another. If you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now there is a whole other sermon in Jeremiah chapter seven. But what leaps out at the reader as we work through that text is the seeming earnestness of the worshipers even as they defame the good name of God. They come into the temple declaring God's goodness and his ever-presence. They're repeating this line that the temple belongs to the Lord, which was a declaration of the children of Israel that the temple was never going to leave them. It was actually a cry of arrogance. It was a national emblem. The temple is ours forever. It will never be taken away. We will always belong to the Lord and he will always belong to us. And rather than using that as a reason to give thanksgiving and worship and praise and glory and honor to God, they used it as an excuse to go out and do whatever they wanted to do. And then as soon as they had gone out and committed murders and adulteries and lies and thefts and done everything that was in their own hearts to do, they came back into the temple of the Lord and they said, we are now saved. It's an Old Testament picture of what you find in Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And their answer was, absolutely. Absolutely. Because God is on our side and He's not on their side and He's not going anywhere. And so long as we come into this temple, He doesn't care what we do. And they come with their songs and their shouts and their chants. All the while, they're ostracizing the traveler, the orphan, the widow. They pursue other gods and then they come back into the temple and declare, We're saved only to continue on in sin. This is exactly what the Pharisees had allowed to take hold in the temple. They had turned worship into something self-serving. And they had hurt others in the process of trying to benefit themselves. Brothers and sisters, worship Worship has to be defined by what God says about it. And our tendency is to define and to make sacrosanct whatever our own personal view of worship is. We declare it to be right by virtue of our own experience and our own opinion, but do you understand, do you understand that worship is not primarily an emotional experience? Not that it doesn't include emotion, don't get me wrong, but it's not primarily an emotional experience by which you feel a tangible sense of the divine. It's not a ritual by which you receive absolution. It's not a sacrifice by which God is appeased. It's not a custom that anchors our calendar. The worship of God is not and cannot primarily be about us. Because worship is intended to be a visible reminder of the centrality of God. It causes us to remember that our communion with God is made possible through the active intercession of the Holy Spirit by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father. And as soon as worship becomes about us, as soon as it becomes about how I feel or what I like or what makes me comfortable or what I'm used to or the things that I enjoy or the things by which I benefit, as soon as worship becomes about any of those things, our own experience, our opinions, or anything else, we have ushered in the oxen and the sheep and the doves into the proverbial temple of our hearts And we have declared to God in no uncertain terms, I do not care what your will is, and I do not care what your plan is, and I do not care what your intention is. I have my own ideas. We have desecrated what God intended to be for his glory. And the beauty of this text is that Jesus' concern in the middle of all of this, as demonstrated in his conversation about the fig tree, and by the teaching that he gave while he was in the temple, is that his concern was not exclusively for the physical space of the temple, though that was important to him, no doubt. But additionally, it was, it was for the hearts of those self-proclaimed worshipers who had made this whole experience about them. See, the temptation for us as we read a text like this, divorced from our own understanding of what worship is and what God has called us to and what he's built us for and designed us for and and intended in our lives, our temptation is to cheer the actions of Jesus in Mark 11 while missing the warning that's intended for us. And 2,000 years later, this passage is just as relevant for us. John Piper said it this way, he said, my sense is that in the 21st century church, we are more more likely to feel God's mercy as a presumed right rather than a mind-blowing surprise. See, the truth of this text is that it is a sobering passage. It reveals that behind all of the commandments and all of the instruction of Scripture and all the invitations that Scripture extends to us, that behind and underneath every single one of those things is the truth that God carefully guards his name and his glory. And I was trying to think about how to illustrate it. And here was the only thing that came to mind to me. Do you remember in Psalm 51, after David's sin with Bathsheba has been found out and he's praying this prayer, uh, begging God for forgiveness in this moment, he actually says to God in the middle of all that, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And the question, of course, comes to mind, well, how can David even say that? He abandoned his God-given responsibilities by not being with his men in battle. He stayed behind in the city where he wasn't supposed to be. And by virtue of his disobedience to God, he was in position to see Bathsheba bathing on the roof. And as if that wasn't enough, he then called for her to be brought unto him. And then he committed adultery with her. And then in order to cover his tracks, he had her husband murdered. And yet David has the gall in this passage to say, against you and you only I have sinned, How does that make sense to us? How do we make sense of that? And of course, David continues by saying this. Here's why I say all of that, David says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David is saying the reason that all of this matters and the reason that I can say in good conscience that it's against God and God alone that I have sinned is because in sinning against God, in fact, in sinning in any way, what you are doing is in some sense or another making a mockery of who God is. It's a declaration that you know better than God what you ought to do and how you ought to live and what you ought to value and, and what God intends for you. And the truth that we see from this text is that God is jealous for his own glory. And that's a word in modern parlance that makes us uncomfortable. I mean we hear that word jealous and we've got all kinds of preconceived notions and ideas as to what that word actually means. But what it means is this, it means that what belongs to God rightly is due him. And any effort we make to pull away from God what rightly belongs to him is theft. We are taking something from him that belongs to him and him alone. And as soon as we lose sight of God's glory, inevitably we will exchange his plan and design for one of our own making. And the end of that road is ruin. And so the question that we face as we read a text like this that is, make no doubt about it, that is heavy and harsh. The question for us to ask is this, in what ways in our own lives are we declaring the goodness and the grace of God while continuing to pursue other gods and ignoring the calling that Jesus has given us? How have we presumed on God's mercy and grace as a right to which we are entitled rather than as a surprise that we do not deserve? Or perhaps put differently, how are we missing the wonder and the beauty of the gospel that we desire and claim to believe? Verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard all of this and saw all of this and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now notice what it is that the chief priests and the scribes were upset about. They weren't upset that the temple had been desecrated. They weren't upset that they had missed God's intention for their own job and occupation. They weren't upset with what the people had done. They weren't upset that there were abuses. They weren't upset about anything other than the fact that they feared Jesus himself, and they were upset because the crowd was astonished and amazed at Jesus' teaching. In fact, all of this only went to prove to the Pharisees that they were doing good and right in trying. To pursue the death of Jesus Christ because he presented a threat to their occupation. Their hearts turned to revenge rather than repentance. In verse 20, and as they, this is Jesus and the disciples, passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Now think about that. The day before Jesus approached this tree solely because he had seen it from afar off and noticed that the leaves were covering the tree. In other words, this is a good and healthy looking tree. But when he approaches the next day, it is withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Now, in this context, I think Jesus is saying to Peter, have faith in God, and I think think he's saying that really as an invitation to Peter. I mean, Peter is such a great character for so many reasons, but he's so great because he often takes the role of the reader in what we would have said to Jesus. Like we would have been just as amazed as Peter was to see this thing withered that just a day earlier had been completely alive and healthy and we very likely would have said the same thing to Jesus. Jesus, can you believe it? Exactly what you said was going to happen, happened. And when Jesus responds by saying have faith in God, I think what he's saying is, Peter, will you please stop being surprised that everything I say will happen, happens. Will you please trust and believe in me? How many amazing, incredible, marvelous, miraculous things do you need to see and observe and partake in firsthand before you stop being amazed that they actually can happen? But that's just my reckon. Verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now we're getting into territory in these next couple of verses, uh, verses that have been ripped from their context and thus been applied to whatever particular instances people want to apply them. But what does Jesus actually mean when he say, says this? Is his point that if you're a Christian you should try to exercise this power and if you really believe in your heart you're going you're gonna to throw a mountain into the sea? I don't think that's his point. I think his point is that there is a very real and true and deep spiritual power that belongs to God outside of our natural known realm that God delights in pouring out in order to demonstrate his power and to bless his people. That God is amazing and unlimited that he is all-powerful and all-knowing, and that he delights in demonstrating his power in the lives of his people. I think Jesus is speaking here in hyperbole. He's trying to illustrate what is a true and real point about the power of faith itself. And once again, when we're defining this, we don't just mean the amount of faith that you have, but rather where your faith is placed, that the object of your faith is infinitely stronger than your ability to demonstrate your faith. And then he continues, verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now ironically, given the passage that we've just looked at, this verse has been ripped from its context and used by the very same modern day charlatans who would have been running the money changing booths in Jesus' time. With no sense of irony in their own hearts, They have done exactly the same thing as what the money changers and the Pharisees did and they've applied it to their own lives. And there's been a whole pseudo-theology that has been built up around the abuse of verses like this. And it's called a whole bunch of different things. Among them, it's called the prosperity gospel or name, and name it and claim it theology. It's that idea that if you just believe the right way or just believe sincerely enough or, or just do the right things or just send three easy payments of 19.99 99 to the address on your screen, we'll send you this holy water that'll solve all of your problems and it'll make you happy and healthy and wise. And by nature and necessity, it is an abomination and a desecration of the gospel that it pretends to own because it is no gospel at all. So what then is the right context for this verse? Well, what we find out is that Jesus speaks explicitly about prayer. That when we ask things of God that align with his perfect will and purpose, he delights in intervening, often in miraculous ways, and granting our requests. So to illustrate this, I mean think about the construction of the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? It begins with a declaration of who God is, and his fatherhood, and, and his power, and then almost immediately, before any requests are given, or any plea is made, the very next words out of Jesus' mouth is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the source, it's the reason why when we pray to God, we so often we so often preface our prayer by saying, "God, if it be your will, would you do these things?" If it be your will, would you bring healing? on this person's life? If if it be your will, would you provide financially in ways that we can't imagine for this particular uh, person's circumstances? And when when we preface our prayers with that idea of Lord, if it be your will, we are not at all hedging our bets in case things don't work out. This is not about us covering our tracks in case we haven't prayed just the right way and God decides not to answer. No, what it is is a means of humbling yourself before the perfect and right will of God. It is a recognition that we only know in part and see in part and therefore we're only able to ask in part. That we have to humble ourselves before God and say, to the best of our understanding, God, this is what we're asking you to do. But we realize that you see things and you know things and you intervene in ways that we couldn't imagine or that we couldn't orchestrate. And so best as we know how, Lord, here's what we're asking for, but only if it be your will. And the guarantee that Jesus gives, both through the Lord's Prayer and through texts like this, is that when we ask in line with the will of God, he will always Grant those requests. Or in the words of one pastor, God will always give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. So think about James chapter one, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all people without reproach and it will be given to him we're praying in line with what scripture tells us explicitly to pray for you can be guaranteed that god hears and answers that request and finally verse 25 jesus ends by saying this and whenever you stand praying forgive forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses and here's what he's saying, a true understanding of the forgiveness of God will constantly be reforming your heart. It will constantly be transforming the way that you view other people and the debt that they potentially owe you in your life. You'll be reformed into the, in your heart to begin to match the heart of Jesus Christ himself and in an extending forgiveness to those who do not deserve it, God is glorified all the more. You see, it's the forgiveness of God that enables you to draw glory to him. And do you understand that all of this is possible because of what it was that Jesus was ultimately going to do? See, where we had tried to steal or usurp the glory of God, Jesus used every opportunity to humble himself and bring honor to his Father where we had tried to take advantage of God's grace and to use it as a means to indulge, Jesus denied himself and took up his cross. Where we clung to bitterness and withheld forgiveness from those that had hurt us, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, ultimately, Jesus' anger at the sin of the people in the temple was gonna be matched and even exceeded by the anger of the Father towards the sin of the world. And the wrath that Jesus showed as he took the whip of cords was going to be exacted on him a hundredfold underneath the Roman scourge. And in order to usher us into proper worship and relationship with the Father, Jesus himself was going to be abandoned by his Father. And amazingly, incredibly, miraculously, his cry of forgiveness did not stop with just those who were in the process of torturing and crucifying him. But it extended to those in the temple in that day and to you and I 2,000 years later. It extended to the defilement of our own heart And the reason that Jesus had to do all of that is because God is jealous for his glory. And the fact that we in our war against God had tried to rob him of it meant that there was a price to be paid that only Jesus himself could have paid. And he paid that exorbitant cost of our sin and did so willingly to forgive us and restore what we had defiled. So when we sing, Jesus paid it all, we literally mean everything. And in that moment on the cross, when he said it is finished, he meant undoubtedly, assuredly, it is finished. All the work necessary for your forgiveness and for mine was accomplished in that moment to bring restoration to his people. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that we would heed the warning of this passage. And God, we don't take it lightly. We realize, even in reading a text like this, that it is a heavy one. It's one that challenges the underpinnings the assumptions that we make about your grace and your mercy. And God, we, we recognize that in so many ways we have presumed upon your grace. We have viewed your mercy as an entitlement rather than a great surprise. And God, we pray that as we read texts like this, that it would cause us to see and live for your glory. That it would enable us to place our faith ever more ever more solidly into you. That you would actively, continually be reforming our hearts into the heart of Jesus Christ. God, humble our will to yours. And in doing so, God, allow us to come boldly before the throne. To ask and believe and to humbly request, trusting in your goodness and your will, that you know better than we know that you see more fully than we see, and that your grace and your goodness runs far deeper than we could ever ask or imagine. God, allow us to extend forgiveness to others in the same way that we've been shown forgiveness. And we'll give you all the glory and the honor that only you deserve. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.